couple books in. There's only, it's actually one of only two books in the Bible named for a woman. Does anyone know what the other one is? Esther. Esther. That's right. Ruth and Esther, only two books in the Bible named for women. Both tell stories of brave and faithful women. During the next few weeks, we're going to be spending our time hearing Ruth's story. And if you've never read the book of Ruth, you're in for a treat. If you haven't read it for a while, it's the story of how a pagan girl named Ruth came to be part of the covenant people of Israel and in, bigger than that, part of God's wider promise to all the world. The little book of Ruth actually has quite a, a history. It's uh, been considered by many to be the most charming short story in the Old Testament. Some have said it's the greatest piece of literature ever written. Even people who are not believers in God have enjoyed reading this little story with a big heart. In fact, rumor has it when Benjamin Franklin was the United States ambassador to France, he occasionally attended what was known as the Infidels Club. The Infidels Club was an association that spent most of its time searching and reading literary masterpieces. On one occasion, Franklin read the story of Ruth to the club members, but he changed the names in the text so it would not be recognized as a book of the Bible. At the conclusion of the story, all of the members of the group were unanimous in their praise. Together they praised it as one of the most beautiful short stories they had ever heard. They demanded that Franklin tell them where he had come across such a remarkable literary work. And rumor has it, it was with great delight that Franklin told them it was from the Bible, a book which the group had professed to regard with contempt, a group which the book believed there was nothing worth reading in. Ruth is a feel-good story. It's one of the few books of the Bible where everyone comes out a winner. And that's where the story ends, but as we start today, as we begin, you're going to notice that's not where we start. As we start our journey with Ruth, as we enter into the first 14 verses of this story, things are a bit more rocky and uncertain. So if you have your Bibles open, and if not, the words will be on the screen. The book of Ruth, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalan and Kilion. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other, Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahalan and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left with her two sons dead and without her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? 
Would you return unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story of Ruth, as you heard, begins in the days when the judges ruled. Now, if you know your Old Testament history, you remember that this was a dark time for the people of Israel. Long after God used Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, long after their years of wandering in the wilderness, the baton was passed from Moses to Joshua, and the Israelites entered the promised land of Canaan. Through Joshua, God divided the land among the 12 tribes of Israel, the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob, and a loose confederation was formed. It was a fragile unity. A fragile unity during that time, both among the 12 tribes themselves and from the tribes along with God. After Joshua died, various tribes would sin against God. They would rebel against God, and this would result in God's judgment. Yahweh would remove his presence, his protection from the people. And as a result, they would become vulnerable before their surrounding enemies. Once they were under attack and suffering, the people would repent of their rebellion, of their sin. And the Lord would send a judge, a deliverer, to rescue Now, if you're familiar at all with the story of the judges, you also know that it doesn't take long after they have been delivered for the people to sin again. This is the vicious cycle of the book of Judges, what makes it such a dark period in Israel's history. Sin and rebellion, judgment and persecution, repentance, deliverance, and then right back into sin. Over and over again. The time of the judges, in many ways, if you want a picture of it, is kind of like the unlawful action and instability of the wild, wild west. It's a period of Israel's history best summarized by the, one of the last verses in the book. A verse that reads, Because the people had no king, no leader, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's against this unstable and harsh background that the story of Ruth begins. Elimelech and his wife Naomi and their two sons lived in Bethlehem in Judah. It was their home. Their relatives and their friends lived there. But as you heard, the family fell on hard times. There was a famine in the land. Today, we'd probably say there was an economic downturn in Israel. And the family moved away looking for work. The sad irony, even more so, is this, is they lived in Bethlehem. Bethlehem in Hebrew means the house of bread. In the house of bread, there is no food. It may have been caused by a drought, It might have been caused by a plague of locusts. The famine might be due to the violence of the times. Whatever the reason, we're told this family heard that conditions were better in the land to the east. So they decided to leave for a while for the country of Moab. They had no intention to stay there. In due course, they would return home again when conditions were better. And already in just the first couple of verses, I I hope we see some resonance with our own lives. Because back in those times and still today... People migrate. They uproot and leave their homes and their loves for the same reasons. East of Israel, just across the Dead Sea, was Moab. A barren, desert land, rocky with lots of hills. 
Today we know the land of Moab as the kingdom of Jordan. Elimelech goes with his two sons and with his wife to look for food. And in the process of looking for food in this distant country, Elimelech dies. And Naomi is now a widow in a foreign land. She has only her two sons. Desperate, she negotiates marriage for them with two local women, Orpah and Ruth. This alliance surely brought stability to Naomi and her sons, so they stayed in Moab for 10 years to be close to the families of these two women. But sadly, as you heard, things get worse before they get better for Naomi. Both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All of this is effectively prologue to the story, by the way. As the real story begins, we encounter three women, Ruth, Orpah, and their mother-in-law, Naomi, in dire straits. The death of the males in their lives has left these three women without any means of support. They are destitute. They have lost everything except maybe their lives. They have to do something, but what? Naomi hears that God has visited his people and given them food. So she decides to return to Bethlehem. Her two daughters-in-law leave with her. And traveling part of the way, Naomi suddenly turns around and urges them to go back home. For Naomi, the journey is a return home after an extended and tragic visit to the country of Moab. It's a return for her to family and friends. It's a coming back to the land again, the place of the Lord's people. But Naomi has no intention of involving these two young widows in this change of country. You see, in those days, marriage was really the only career option for a woman. It was the one thing that promised stability. Naomi can see no future for the young women in her own country. They're Moabites. Being Moabites, they would be less likely to remarry in Israel. See, there had been serious conflict between Israel and Moab over the years, and the Moabites were not well-liked. Balak was the king of Moab, and he was the one who asked Balaam to curse the people of Israel. Elagon was the king of Moab, and he, it was under his reign that Israel was defeated by the Moabites. A Moabite widow coming to live in Israel would have had a very difficult life. And added to this, Naomi is rightly concerned about her own situation back in Bethlehem. To be a woman alone in a male-dominated culture was to be faced with ruin. There was no social security in those days, no safety net, no source of any kind of a future if a woman didn't have a man in her life. In those days, as Naomi alludes to, if you caught it in her eloquence to her daughters-in-law, a woman without a man was a woman without hope. And so she pushes her daughters-in-law away. She presses them to go back to their mother's home as a means of protecting them. But there is even more going on here. Even more going on here for Naomi besides offering practical wisdom. You probably caught it in, as she continued to press her daughters. You'll notice how Naomi prays for the Lord's blessing upon her daughters by marriage. The blessings of kindness, of remarriage in a new home. She prays for their blessing, did you notice? Even though she perceives no blessing in her own future. Naomi's perception of her circumstances is that a dark cloud of judgment is upon her. From her own mouth, she confesses her belief that the Lord has turned against me. Broken. Bitter, feeling abandoned, Naomi believes that she's crawling back to Bethlehem to survive without hope 
or happiness. All she can see ahead of her is a life of abject poverty, scorn, and loneliness. For her, it's as if the Lord has shut himself off from her cries. It's as if the Lord has become her enemy. This morning, perhaps you can relate to Naomi. Maybe this morning, like her, you find yourself having run smack dab into the unfairness of life. At first, you didn't see it coming. But now, you can't help but expect more of it to fall on top of you. Things around you just keep going from bad to worse. It's not just one part of your life that's gone south for you. Everything has been turned upside down. You lost your job. They're foreclosing on your house. The bills are stacking up. And the creditors keep calling. You don't even answer the phone anymore. The cancer has spread. Another surgery is needed. The medication that, that you've been prescribed is actually creating more complications. You actually feel worse than you did before. The marriage is falling apart. You're not even talking anymore. Another loved one, another friend has passed away or moved away. Your children, they seem distant from you. He's drinking again. She's using drugs again. You're being sued. She's cheating on you. Nothing you do ever seems to go right. Everyone around you seems to be happy, but you feel so alone, so abandoned. Maybe, like Naomi, you find yourself bitter and angry with God. Why me? Why this? Why now? How much more of this am I supposed to take? You may even feel guilty daring to ask such questions. You might even start to become convinced that you had it coming that you've done something to deserve this, that God is punishing you. Or maybe as you cry into your pillow, maybe as you scream in the silence of your darkened bedroom, you blame God for all of this. You've experienced such heartbreak, so many losses, that there isn't much left for you to lose, except maybe your own life. That's where Naomi is. She's out on the ledge. She's getting ready to jump. She's going back to Bethlehem to die. She's pushing everyone around her away because she has no hope. Later, she will change her name to Mara, which means bitter. Because bitterness is what she believes her life has become. Maybe you're not... Naomi today, but over the course of our lives, beloved, all of us will spend at least a little time in her shoes. We will encounter the loss of loved ones. We will taste the bitterness of depression. We will experience that pervasive sense of emptiness. And in those moments, our faith will waver, perhaps even disappear. The voices of conventional wisdom, the whispers of depression will start to convince us that all is lost and so we will be just tempted to give up, to let go. 
And it's in those seasons of life, whether you're there today or whether you will be so tomorrow, it's in those seasons of life that we need to pay attention to the seeds of redemption that are planted within the story of Ruth. Naomi's faith is faltering. It's perhaps even disappeared. As she journeys back to Bethlehem empty-handed, she can perceive no hope for the future. All that awaits her, she believes, is a painful homecoming. And so she tearfully attempts to let go of Orpah and Ruth. Orpah decides to stay in the land of Moab. She goes back to her family to start over. But Ruth, you heard it, clung to her. Ruth would not let Naomi go. She chose to go with Naomi back to the land of Israel. Beloved, for me, this is more than the simple action. This is more than the simple action, the devoted response of a daughter-in-law. Ruth's clinging to Naomi, and I love that word, that picture. Picture that, clinging to Naomi. Ruth's clinging to Naomi is the embodiment of God himself holding on to Naomi. This isn't to take away from the real choices that Ruth and Orpah make here. By their own free will, Orpah leaves and Ruth stays. But within these decisions, and this is something you're going to see throughout this story of Ruth, within these decisions, God is also exercising his providence. Providence is a fancy word we use in the faith, in the church. Providence is a fancy one-word description to encapsulate God's behind-the-scenes power, governing every detail of life so that his ultimate plan and purpose for us, for the world, succeeds. Providence is a powerful word. Through Ruth, through Naomi's return to Bethlehem, God is and God will affirm his presence to Naomi in the midst of his perceived absence. Through the actions taken by Ruth, God is working to exercise grace and not judgment in her life. God is bring, working to bring good out of the tragic circumstances of two women. One, an Israelite, a person who has seemingly lost her faith, and the other, a Moabite, an outsider, a foreigner, someone supposedly outside the faith, outside of the Lord's sphere of care, and interest. And yet God's providence in this story is even greater than just these two women. What you will discover, what we will discover together in the story of Ruth is that God's redemptive reach extends beyond these two women and it captures a nation. During these dark days for Israel, days when true faith was rare, sin was rampant, when people did what was right in their own eyes, God is not only clinging to Naomi, God is holding on to Israel. Normally, I don't like giving away the end of the story, but if you'll allow me, out of the lives of three everyday people like the, us, in the otherwise insignificant city of Bethlehem, will rise the greatest of Israel's earthly kings and eventually the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. In the hundred verses that make up this tale, an embittered mother-in-law will become the great-great-grandmother of Israel's greatest earthly king, David. And a pagan widow will bear the seed of salvation, the line of David that comes to fruition with the birth of the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus Christ. Beloved, on the surface, this book of Ruth appears to be the story of a young woman who follows her mother-in-law into a new world and finds true love. And it is that, but it is so much more Naomi's family is preserved for Israel and for us. 
The story within the story is the providential hand of God unfolding his redemption of the world through people like you and me. And the implications of this, the implications of this, if you let it sink in, are encouraging as they are astounding. Today, if you're like Naomi, today, if you relate to Naomi, take heart in realizing through this story that in your darkest days, you are not alone. Life is hard as a fallen people in a fallen world. There's no getting around that. Ruth is a story that doesn't shy away from confronting how tragic, how painful, and how desperate life can be sometimes. It doesn't deny that when everything seems to be falling apart, when everything seems to be going wrong, God can feel distant. Doubts can creep in, and we can feel like letting go. But the whole of Ruth's story assures us that even when we don't understand what happens to us, when we don't understand what's happening around us, God is real. God is there. God is working in ways that we don't always see. The Lord does not always insulate us from the pain of a fallen world, but neither will he leave us or forsake us. Ruth shows us that God's primary work is redemption, that God's primary character trait is compassion. Therefore, God is forever always working all things together for good, as the scriptures tell us, in the best interests of his people. Naomi can't see this, nor should she be able to. Maybe you can't see it this morning either. And like Naomi, you don't have to see it, but you can believe it. God makes all things good. Let's be clear, but getting there sure hurts a lot. The weeping that's part of this story. It's a story that begins and ends with tears. At first, Naomi weeps from the pain of devastating loss. The weeping that she endures in the night is harsh. It's tragic. But this story will end also with tears. But by the end of this story, her tears will flow from joy. And that joy is real too. I don't know who I'm speaking to this morning. I may not be speaking to anybody, but I don't think that's true. Right now, there may be a famine of joy in your life. And instead, all you have is bitterness. All you have is sadness. Trust, if that is you this morning, that the seeds of your redemption are being planted. Like Naomi, you may not see it, but you can believe it. Like Naomi, you just have to head home. Like Naomi, God will hold on to you even when you feel like letting go. Today, maybe you're like Ruth, though. Today, maybe you relate more to Ruth. And if today that is the person who you can resonate more with, recognize being like Ruth, that no one is outside the will, the reach of this God. In the dark days of life, God works his providence out through individuals, through everyday people like you and me. You may choose to drift through your life without purpose, but that doesn't mean that your life and your choices are purposeless. We are each fearfully and wonderfully made. We are each here for a reason. And in the midst of and through the lives we live, the decisions we make, the actions that we take, God is working out his plan of salvation. Beloved, that means that no life is insignificant. 
No life is insignificant. That means that every action taken in life is relevant and contributes to the overall redemptive work that God is doing in the world. As we continue through this story of Ruth, you're going to notice something. I hope you catch it. The Lord's guidance in this story doesn't come through dreams. It doesn't come through visitations. It doesn't come through angelic visions or voices from heaven. There's no prophet that's sent that suddenly appears on the scene and says, Thus saith the Lord. No, in the story of Ruth, God works behind the scenes through ordinary motivations, everyday events. And it's not just for Ruth, it's for us all. Ruth, Ruth couldn't see the bigger picture, nor should she be able to. And maybe this morning you're sitting here and you can't see the bigger picture. But like Ruth, you don't have to. You just have to believe it. Through the seemingly insignificant, foolish, yet courageous decision of a foreigner, the Lord will bring the Savior of all creation. Think about that. The fruit of her redemption is not something she will witness in her lifetime, and yet Ruth's life is a blessing for generations to come. So it is with us. Your life and mine is intended to be a blessing to others. Where, how, and to whom may not always be obvious or visible to us. But like Ruth... In the simple act of reaching out and clinging on to someone who has lost hope, God can work to hold the destiny of the universe together. Let me say that again. Through the simple act of reaching out and holding on to someone who has lost hope, God can work to hold the destiny of the universe together. Beloved, God saves people through people. One hand holding on to another. Of many things, Ruth is known as a love story. And every time I read Ruth, I'm reminded not only of God's providence in our world, but God's providence in my own life. Time doesn't permit me to give you the long version of this story, but long ago, or long ago it seems to me, I was a seventh grade boy who had lost his way. Now I know it's customary when we become adults to make light of maybe what people, kids are feeling in seventh, eighth, or maybe even high school, but I can tell you, I was lost. I was struggling with my faith, with my sense of identity, with my, my life, and I can tell you, even though I'm 41 years old, I can remember that seventh grade boy, and I can tell you that my sense of pain, my sense of abandonment, my bitterness was just as tangible as Naomi's. And I was angry. And I wanted to let go. I tried to let go. But God wouldn't let me go. And it's so easy to look back I couldn't see it at the time, but I look back and I can see God's providence at work in my life. I can see the seeds of redemption that were being, being planted when I was a seventh grader. The seeds that were planted when my family moved. The seeds that were planted when I met someone who was one of the best friends I've ever had. At that time, that friendship fed my faith. At that time, that friendship gave me hope. At that time, that friendship 
revealed to me in the most tangible, physical of ways that God was real and that God loved me. I had no idea 19 years later that would be my wife. It's wonderful to say now, but I had no idea. Back then, as an eighth grader who met her for the first time, I just thought she was hot. I just thought it was the greatest thing ever that she talked to me. I couldn't see until later the things that God was doing in the midst of the decisions that I was making, in the midst of the things that were happening to me. Beloved, I encourage you as we start this story of Ruth to think about your life from two different perspectives. Think of it from the perspective of Naomi. And it's always easier to look back. So right now you may not be in that place, but look back and realize the people that God has put into your life as a way of holding on to you. Look back and remember the people that God has held on to you through. Remember those moments. Remember those moments when you felt like Naomi, abandoned, lost, bitter, and you were clung to. But then also stop and think about those moments when you've been Ruth. When you were just doing your thing, weren't even aware of what was going on. And yet God, through you, held on to someone else. To you, it was no big deal. It was a simple thing. It wasn't all that courageous. It wasn't all that brave. But you held on to someone. You were there for them. And through you, God was redeeming someone. Beloved, God saves people through people. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. But a long time ago, Jesus saved me through that woman back there and many others. It's not just my story. It's not just her story. It's our story. So if you're here this morning and if your faith has been tested, if you're here this morning and you're wondering where is God, if you're here this morning and you're wondering what is God doing, is God doing anything? How do I even know if God's there? How do I get through these times that I'm going through right now that just seem to get from bad to worse? If you believe this morning you've been abandoned by God, then read carefully the story of Ruth to see a reflection of how God is at work in our lives even when we can't see him. In the first verses that we've looked at this morning, just 14, we witness the first glimmer of hope of something larger at work in Ruth and Naomi's life. God is working in occupying the mundane, obscure, and tragic circumstances in which they find themselves. This extraordinary God is working through ordinary means. As a lonely widow in her declining years with no children and grandchildren to care for her goes back home to die. And as a younger widow, a foreigner, an outsider of the faith, is holding on and has no idea the ride that she's in for. There is a faint light shining through the window in that little town of Bethlehem because it's harvest time. The seeds of redemption planned long ago before Ruth and Naomi found themselves in this situation are about to be gleaned through works of grace and love. Naomi and Ruth's lives are in the hands of providence. They are not in the throes of circumstance. They are not at the whim of happenstance. Together, they are in the hands of God's providence. And beloved, as we begin this journey with them, so were you, and so am I. Amen? Amen. Amen.